And welcome into Ask Dog Central on a Friday evening before the 4th of July. Hope you guys are doing well. My name is Graham Coffey. I am alone today, uh, minus my usual co-host. Holiday weekend, folks are out traveling. Uh, I just got back from a road trip myself, so a little hard coordinating schedules this week, but uh, we wanted to make sure we gave you guys at least a short show on this Friday evening, some something for you guys to consume over the holiday weekend if you're hitting the road or getting out in different places. Um, so obviously, the big news of the day, well, or of the week of the off season, I guess you could also getting say, out in different is places. Uh, um, so the USC UCLA to the Pac-12 news. Uh, I'm sorry to the to the Big Ten news. Sorry, it's a little bit difficult. Not used to producing and talking at once. So bear with me this evening. Uh, yeah, I think it caught everyone off guard. Uh, what this feels like to me is kind of the the big match that's going to strike the powder keg. Last year, we saw the news come out of Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC takes the league to 16 teams, obviously kind of threw the Big 12 into flux, but that still made geographic sense, right? Like it was a natural expansion for a conference that was already in the state of Texas, has natural rivals for Texas and Oklahoma with Arkansas uh, from the, the old Southwest Conference days. You had Missouri from the old Big 12 days. Uh, Texas A&M and Texas obviously are arch rivals. So it all felt natural, right? This move yesterday with USC and UCLA heading to the Big Ten is a little bit different. Like you're talking about two schools that are probably a couple thousand miles, 1,500 miles away from the closest competition in the conference. Uh you know, the Big Ten's basically skipping over the mountain time zone and landing itself in Southern California. There's a huge travel situation there. Uh, culturally, USC and UCLA are extremely different from schools like Iowa, right? Uh, USC, UCLA, flashy, warm sun, Southern California. Then you have kind of the traditional Big Ten ethos, which is, you know, kegs and eggs for an 11 a.m. kickoff time and cold and snow and uh, kind of the the whole like Midwestern mentality. So really fascinating from a lot of standpoints, but I think this is kind of the, the final blow to – college football remaining how we knew it, right? Like, I think that moving forward, you are 100% heading towards a uh, a new world, a new world of, of college athletics, uh, at least when it comes to college football and college basketball. Uh, obviously, the SEC is in great position to kind of continue expanding, expanding, become a super league, as they call it, uh, the Big Ten, even though this move really, you know, just doesn't even, you know, bring them up to a number higher than the SEC has because of the geography, 
this feels like the kind of throwing down of of the gauntlet and saying like, all right, it's a race. The race is on, and now we're going to see which of these conferences can can really acquire teams fast enough. And in my opinion, the Big Ten is a bit of an advantage over the SEC because the teams that they're going to want to acquire, like Washington and Oregon potentially, or uh, a Stanford or a Cal or uh, even like a, you know, a Utah maybe, or, or, you know, someone in the mountain time zone like that, like those schools currently sit in conferences that are on shaky ground. And uh, you know, the, the big 12 just added UCF and uh, Cincinnati and all these schools, but at the same time, they still don't have a, a rights package that's been finalized and, and in place. So no one is really under any contractual obligation right now to, to stay there. And so all of this could change dramatically. I, it would not shock me if we see some of these teams that are in the, the big 12 currently leave potentially for another conference before the, the league ever really uh, plays a season in the form that we're expecting it to be in in that 2025 season after Oklahoma and Texas leave or, you know, when, when Cincinnati and the other new additions show up. So it's a fascinating time. It's, it's definitely not your grandfather's college football, right? Um, I, I think we're, we're looking at a sport that is in a little bit of an identity crisis because college football has always been built on regionalism. Uh, that's where the 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 SEC 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 chant came from, right? Like, and I think for Southerners in particular, um, go back and read articles about Georgia going up and beating Michigan. Uh, I, I believe it was in 1960 or 1961 uh, when you know Michigan was the one of the the premier you know football institutions of the the era and had all of the the pageantry that Michigan likes to think it has now there's quotes out there of people talking about it was like you know getting to refight the civil war and win that time and you know that's obviously not really politically correct today but like there is still uh I think that element that exists within southeastern football at this point in time of it's a point of pride for people in the region that feel like folks from up north and you know folks from other parts of the country have always kind of looked down at them population trends have changed dramatically over the last two to three decades uh you have a ton of people that are in a mass exodus from big cities and from colder climates to places like Atlanta and Charlotte and, you know, large metropolitan areas in the South and uh, the suburbs that surround them because air conditioning and mosquito control basically made it. So the South was livable and, you know, a lot of the issues that used to exist don't, don't want to go down that, that road too far, but point being, I think we're looking at a, a time here where 
that whole regionalism in college football is going to go away. Uh, the teams will still have their own personalities, right? Like, but just even with recruiting now, like when I was a kid, Ohio State had a bunch of guys from Pennsylvania and Ohio playing quarterback and, you know, at the, the main skill positions. And they would go into Detroit and fight Michigan for, for big players. But now, you know, I mean, C.J. Stroud is a California native. Uh, Bryce Young at Alabama is a California native. Um, it's a different time. And the there was a point where the teams, you know, they were made out of a bunch of guys that, we're we're from uh from that state and so the people that live there and grew up there they may have you know watched their kids play high school football against those those guys and it just kind of perpetuated to where a, a school like georgia it represented the state of georgia from a demographic sense from a cultural sense and you know the beauty for UGA is its brand is in a national spot now where it can recruit kids from all over the country. Keely Ringo grew up in Washington state, went to high school in Arizona. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of guys that are on the team now that don't have kind of that, uh, that Southern or Georgia upbringing and that's fine, but it's, it, it just changes the sport dramatically. And, and I mean, along with, the change in kind of the regionalism, I think you're going to see, well, I know you're going to see a lot of these traditional rivalries go away. Uh, Georgia and Auburn is a game that's probably already on the chopping block, depending on how the SEC decides to organize its new schedule. Uh, Stanford Cal, the big game, you know, I mean, like that could be going away. Um, all of the, you know, like USC and Oregon has become a, a really intriguing series over the past two decades as Oregon kind of rose as a program and USC with its history and, you know, through the, the liner Bush era and kind of those glory years that they had as a dynasty in the, the early to mid two thousands tried to hang on to its stranglehold in the PAC 12. So the flip side of this is money rules, everything, um, if you want to know what happened here, you can basically trace it back to Larry Scott, the former commissioner of the PAC 12 and all the dumb things that he did, particularly around carrier rights of the PAC 12 network when it launched. And uh, I live in uh, the four corners region over in Southwest Colorado. And uh, I've had a couple different cable providers over the years, depending on, which house we were in and, and what was available and all of that. But um, I got to pay extra, a lot extra if I want the PAC 12 networks, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago when Washington state was in the middle of, of its, you know, great season with uh, Gardner Minshew before Mike Leach left, probably a third of their games, four or five of them were on, you know, they were two thirty PM, uh, Pacific time kick or central, like just weird kickoff times and hard to find. And so I get why UCLA and USC want to go and tee it up in the big 10 because it helps their national brands and the, the money in the big 10 right now, at least from a TV rights standpoint is even bigger than what the sec can offer. Uh, 
there's also the difference that ESPN owns the SEC network and they pay out schools in the SEC, but the Big Ten owns a portion of its own television network. And so with that, you have a situation where the the ceiling maybe is a little bit higher uh, in the long run in terms of what the actual earning potential is for these schools. And all of that money makes it a lot easier to charter private jets and uh, send your, your football teams and your basketball teams <coughs> over the, you know, over the entire Pacific and mountain time zones to, to go play games in the, the middle of the country or as far away as Rutgers and Maryland all the way over on the East coast. So it's a strange time. Uh, the natural question is kind of how does this affect Georgia? Obviously it's, it, it, it's, not really changing anything in the immediate, but it does, I think, lead to there are going to be a lot of folks coming to the SEC. Like the Georgia, I think, will hold on to being the only SEC member in the state. I don't think Georgia Tech is really uh, considered to be a prime candidate by anyone for SEC membership. They were there. They left. It was a really dumb move uh, all over basically a, a feud between Bobby Dodd and Bear Bryant. It's worth reading about if you haven't. But um, who who does the SEC target, right? Uh, Clemson and Florida State have always been the two most natural fits. They're the two programs that really run like a uh, – like, like SEC – football teams, right? Like football is first and no one's trying to like make any kind of uh, overly pious or virtue signaling type moves or statements or uh, create false perceptions that football doesn't run things because football does run things in those places. Um, so I think those two are a natural bump to 18 if you're the Southeastern Conference. But I also think that you're in a place where what happens with like UNC? Uh, academically, maybe more of a fit for the Big Ten. But Georgia and North Carolina, I mean, they have a series that, that goes way back. Uh, you talk to old time UGA folks or, you know, folks that grew up in Athens and they'll tell you about like their parents going to Chapel Hill every year for, uh, for games or every other year for, for games back in, back in the day and, and how much they enjoyed the trip. And, you know, Chapel Hill and Athens are two of the best college towns in America. Um, they are the two oldest state universities in the country. Uh, there's a lot of kids from, Atlanta, they go to North Carolina. There's a lot of kids from North Carolina that go to Georgia. I'm one of them. Um, there is a lot of UGA alums in North Carolina now in the Charlotte area. So I think that would be a huge coup for the SEC if they could pull it off. But North Carolina is an institution that considers itself, you know, a, a Southern Ivy kind of place and, and they want to hold up a certain perception and 
by joining a conference with, you know, academic schools like uh, Alabama or Auburn or LSU or uh, some of the, you know, schools that are maybe not as prestigious does that solely their reputation? Um, I don't know. The other counter argument is all of that money that you're going to make from being an SEC would allow you to build even more buildings on campus. But um, I think North Carolina would definitely be on the wish list for the SEC. It's just, can they get them? Uh, the other side of this. So, yeah, I mean, Georgia and North Carolina have played 31 times. Um the last one was obviously Kirby Smart's first game back in 2016. But before that, I mean, in the in the 50s and 60s and 40s, they were playing almost every other year and in some instances four years straight. So I think Georgia folks and UNC folks would be very pumped to have that game back on the schedule. Um, the other thing – that's kind of worth considering is just the ACC grants of grant of rights, right? Right now it runs through 2036. And so it's seen as a terrible deal because the, the value of these television contracts are skyrocketing and skyrocketing and skyrocketing. And so by locking in a deal for, I think it was 18 years when the ACC signed it, maybe 20, it was a long ass time. I know that um, the ACC really, negotiated themselves out of a boatload of money that they could have made if they were signing four-year rights packages with with ESPN or whoever wants to carry their games. Uh, but maybe that's the thing that saves the league now because the way that that's written is, is really strict. Um, the ACC, you know, they stole a bunch of teams from the Big East, and so they knew better than anyone kind of – in our, you could argue the ACC sort of kicked this realignment thing off once upon a time. Um, they know better than anyone just kind of how fickle this whole thing goes. So I could see, like, even if a school wanted to leave the ACC, I'm pretty sure the way it's written is their television rights go – the the, the the revenue from their television rights will continue to go to the conference until 2036, which is a – absolute eternity so it's a little it the the move that the big 10 made i think is uh almost i wouldn't go so far as to call it a problem for the sec because they're already at 16 teams and texas and oklahoma are just two enormous brands in college sports but if the big 10 decides to go and add oregon and washington or you know uh, Stanford and Cal or, you know, some of these other teams out there, you could see a scenario where they get to 24 teams or 22 teams or 20 teams pretty quickly. So it's something worth, worth keeping an eye on. Um, I think for the SEC, everyone talks about the ACC schools because it is a natural fit geographically. But at this point, you know, you got a, a Midwestern conference that's in every time zone. So there's nothing to stop the SEC and Greg Sankey from saying, okay, we're already in the state of Texas. You know, let's go scoop up uh, a Baylor or, you know, uh, let's go, let's go scoop up an Arizona or an Arizona state. Um, it would be weird. Uh, I mean, like personally, just my own, 
my own bias and my own lifestyle, I would love to see, uh, you know, uh, Georgia have games on the schedule in Boulder, Colorado or Tempe, Arizona every few years. Um, there's few places nicer than Boulder, Colorado in September or Tempe, Arizona in November. Um, but it's just, it's, it's going to be a bizarre time. And I think for someone like me who came by college football and my passion for it through uh, generations of family members who attended the same school at UGA and who, you know, talked about old games like Georgia Auburn 1982 and, you know, uh, talked about kind of some of these regional rivalries and are really rooted in the regionalism of the, the sport. This is starting to get really weird. Um, even when I go home to North Carolina to, to see family, you know, it's, there's always been that clear divide of uh, Georgia and South Carolina are, you know, SEC territory. I guess South Carolina is kind of a split state with Clemson being an ACC school. But once you cross into North Carolina, you're in ACC country and it's the tobacco road schools and, and all of that. And I think it's a interesting dynamic because old men at church on Sunday mornings, you know, they, they always – like to barb each other back and forth about what each conference is doing and how they appear on the national stage or, you know, how they did in bowl games where the conferences went head to head. And I think uh, you're heading for a, a time maybe where a league like the SEC has basically two 12 team divisions. And that whole conversation about the SEC having its own playoff doesn't sound so silly now, does it? Right. Like if you've got a 24 team league, uh, you can run a pretty damn entertaining four-team or eight-team playoff at the end of the season with just SEC schools. If you're adding, uh, you know, Clemson, Miami, FSU, UNC, uh, I think Virginia Tech would be a great cultural fit in SEC. Um, likewise with Louisville, I, I think Kentucky would crawl over broken glass to keep Louisville from ever having a chance in the conference to be in the conference, but um, – Regardless of that, like that all makes sense regionally, but there's nothing to stop the SEC from. I mean, if you want a a brand and you want a a school that's that's trying to operate and trying to invest money in its college football program the way that SEC schools, aside from Vanderbilt, are you know known for doing and, and the way that they operate. I think you're looking at a, uh, I mean, like, why not Oregon, right? And Washington is a great, a great brand as well. Um, that would it be weird? Absolutely. But if you uh, acquired other schools in the region, uh, you know, if you if you brought in a Colorado and a Utah, and kind of bridged that in between gap between Texas and the Pacific Northwest. Uh, those schools could do a lot in a pod system and cut down on travel and all of that. But like we said before, there's too much money being thrown around for travel to be a consideration at this point, which means everyone that told you for years and years, like, you know, remember that the NCAA uh, has made tons of decisions over the years and leagues and, and athletic administrators have made tons of decisions over the years 
under the like company line of we're doing, we want to do what's best for our student athletes. Right. Uh, not anymore. Not now. Not that the, the whole thing is switched the other way. And now that the money's in the other direction. It doesn't matter. So it's going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> Harry Liggy says that Georgia tech is on hospice watch. Uh, that is true. I mean, if the ACC were to dissolve, uh, I don't know. I don't know where they land. Um, it's been a long time since they've been good and it'll be interesting. So, uh, yeah. Any, any other talk about the realignment stuff at this point, I think would just be speculation, but it really is a fascinating time. And I guess the closing thought I will give here is just don't, uh, don't count anything out at this point. Cause I never thought we would see the day where, you know, the two of the kind of heritage Pac-12 brands. I mean, the Pac-12's history goes back long, long time. Never thought we'd see a time where those two brands were moving over into uh, into a Midwestern-based conference. And so if the Big Ten's going to do it, then I can promise you the SEC is, is going to do it as well. It's an arms race at this point. Uh FYI, if you are not aware, uh, we are live on our YouTube channel. I can see uh, any questions that you guys throw up there or comments. So we'd love to have you uh, stop by over there. I'm going to throw that link up on Twitter right now. Boom. So if you guys want to jump in. That would be a blast. Um, let's talk a little bit. So we've got some questions from our Dog Central uh, subscribers. If you're not on Dog Central, don't know what you're waiting for. It's an awesome community. Um, super grateful for the way you guys have supported it so far. Uh, we just hit our 30-day mark and uh, 150,000 uh, page views in the month of june just really really exciting um we're thrilled with the response and the participation from you guys uh especially considering this is really kind of the the slow season for college football um we've got a lot of cool stuff coming we're about to ramp up big time with preview content and lots of videos lots of subscriber only uh content and preview content and uh Really hope you guys will join us over there. If you haven't checked it out, go to dogcentral.com slash register. Uh, we are still running our six months for $33 and 18 cents uh, deal. That will probably uh, end here very, very soon. But uh, if you go over today, you can get basically uh, from now through football season for 33 bucks and 18 cents. It's a pretty good deal. Um, so, Got a question here. Uh, uh, we're going to shift to recruiting a little bit. Um, we got a, one from the chat. It says, oh, thank you, Harry. He's a proud member. Uh, I didn't mean to put his up, but good advertisement nonetheless. Uh, S. Rhino, do we expect UGA to try and flip a 2023 quarterback or go all in on a five-star 2024 quarterback? So, uh if you uh, haven't checked it out, I uh, interviewed 2024 five-star quarterback Julian Sand this week. Uh, 
fun write-up that I got to do with him and also uh, broke down some of his highlight tape. So that's the guy that we're hearing the most buzz about right now on the quarterback front. Um, he told me he was originally planning on committing in October of this this coming fall. Now he's looking at bumping that commitment up a little bit. What does up a little bit mean? I don't know. Um, he is not a guy that, uh, I don't know, he, he's he's not your average recruit in the, this day and age. Uh, I don't, you know, he, he's told me that he does not expect to put out a top 10 list or a top five list. I think he's the type of dude that uh, he's going to decide one day where he wants to go and he's going to go. So, I, I think George is in a very good position for him. Um, I do know that uh, I, I think, you know, one of our competing outlets uh, has started kind of putting some forecasting about him towards Alabama. Maybe. Um, but I'm not saying this just to appeal to my audience. I would, I would say this to, to anyone on any show. Julian Sand is a better quarterback prospect than Arch Manning. Um, Arch Manning, because of the name, because of the legacy, because if you look at the track record of uh, football players who are children or bloodline of past NFL players who are successful, they have a great uh, percentage, a great hit rate of becoming NFL players themselves. I understand why Arch Manning is highly rated and because of just what his name brings as a brand as in free publicity to a school and because of the skill position recruits that are going to follow him, I get why he was the number one quarterback in the 2023 class. If we're going just off tape, uh, there's there's better ones in this class that from what from from what they've done so far from from what we have to go off of uh, you know Nico Iamalieva is a six seven freak athlete uh, he's going to Tennessee but like his tape and his accomplishments on field and what he has done statistically much more impressive uh, brings me to Julian saying he's started one year of high school football. Uh, in, in a pretty tough division in California. Um, he's got the arm. He has incredible feet work, footwork. Uh, what's most impressive for me about him, though, it's not the physical tools. He has plenty of physical gifts, but what he can do on the field from a football IQ field awareness standpoint is extremely rare for a guy who uh, really, you know, just, just stepped into the starting role less than 12 months ago. Uh, his field awareness is freaky. He has field awareness that there's a, a lot of college quarterbacks that would be jealous of what he can do and, and what he sees. He's a guy that, you know, he has running ability, but you just don't see him run on tape that much because he's really damn good at keeping his eyes downfield and he'll avoid the rush and he'll move laterally and, you know, not cross the line of scrimmage and, and find a guy loose or he'll scramble right and throw back to a guy that that's open on the left because the defense has influenced this way over. 
he does all the little things really, really well. Um, his play fakes and his play action, uh, just kind of how he carries out uh, fake tosses and fake handoffs and all of that, it is extremely detailed. And he does all the little things that you need to do as a college quarterback once you start uh, playing against guys that that share your athletic gifts. And normally a guy with his physical talent, they just out-athlete everyone on the field around them all through high school. And then they get to college and they hit this really steep learning curve of what do I have to do to, to really excel and play well at this level? Julian Sayan is already doing those things. Uh, he is as college ready of a young quarterback as, as I have seen. Um, what I think really makes him that way is his decision-making is just well, well beyond his years. Um, 34 touchdowns and five interceptions this season. Uh, you're talking about over 10 yards attempt, but the number that really stands out to me, uh, 71.5% completion percentage from a high school quarterback. That's, that's freaky. Uh, and I mean, his tape is actually a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of like Bryce young similarities there, truthfully. Um, so if Georgia can land him, they need to land him. And, uh, they're, you know, all in, I think on, on trying to, to secure his commitment. Uh, I believe he will commit probably sometime this summer. Uh, if not, you know, maybe sometime early September, but just the vibe I'm getting is sometimes this summer. And I think Georgia, if they can land him, the future of the program is probably in better hands than it would be had they landed Arch Manning. Uh, 2024 is still a question mark. As good as I think he is, as ready as I think he is, it's still tough to step on campus and start as a true freshman. Uh, I do know he plans to early enroll wherever he goes. So I think in that regard, he would, you know, he would have a little bit extra time. He would have a spring to try and give. Uh, he does play in a pro-style offense already, and he goes under center a lot. And that's something that we just don't see in high school football anymore. And so I think those things will help him. Um, and just you watch him on tape, he gets through his progressions quick. And so if UGA can bring him in, um, I think they're in great shape. Because I, I do think uh, Carson Beck has – risen his game in a pretty significant way. And I, I think that, you know, he's in a position where he could be the quarterback and uh, Georgia would be in good hands in 2023. So I'm not so worried about who the guy is for next year, but I think if you're Georgia, you have a lot of unknowns for 2024 uh, just because Vandegrift and Stockton haven't, that light hasn't come on yet. Not to say it won't, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, moving on. Uh, William Griffin asked at running back three, do you expect Dajan to break out this year? I do. I love Dajan Edwards. Um, I got, I don't know, folks kind of, I think, uh, not made fun of me, but just, you know, it, there, it was sort of a, an inside joke on uh, Doc Sports Live last year uh, on Josh and I's film review shows because we would we would always show his tape and 
when you would get in the game, it's it's just like it's impressive. Um, he has really really good vision. He does a great job of getting to the line of scrimmage and making making a cut and going. And you know he he bounces in and he gets through the hole. Uh, his his yards after contact his his yards before contact, like he does all the things right that you would want him to do. And a lot of times he's often playing behind second team offensive line that, that sometimes is still blocking the opposition's first team defensive line. So it's not like he's like always coming out on the field and just has these giant holes that you could drive a Mack truck through and he's just getting easy yards. So I do think that uh, I've heard lots of great things about his spring practice. Um, I know the coaches love him. I know he does everything right from all accounts. So, yeah, I, I think he's definitely the number three running back coming into the season. Uh, McIntosh and Milton are the clear kind of 1A and 1B, but uh, both those guys have some injury history, right? And uh, they are both different kind of backs than he is. Um, Dejan is, you know, bigger than McIntosh, smaller than Milton, doesn't have quite the uh, agility and – like ability to to do crazy things in the past game like McIntosh does, but he does have, I think, a little more of that maybe than than Milton does when you're talking about some of those like quick routes. Uh, we did see Milton, you know, he did a great job catching a touchdown on a wheel route out on G-Day. He had some nice screen passes uh, his freshman year at Georgia, but just I think there's a lot of things that that Georgia can can do with him that'll that'll work out. Um so Ben in the chat asks, uh, did anyone else hear the open mic where the guy said the players were getting paid by the people in those box seats at Texas? I think he means Texas A&M, but it does bring me to a question. Um, we'll just talk about the whole state of Texas at once. Uh, that was left by one of our dog central readers on the forum. It says, how much is NIL having an effect on who we target? Are we moving on to the next target when it becomes obvious that NIL is factoring into their decision? Do you expect less battles with schools like Texas ATM? I'm sorry, Texas A&M. I'm sorry, Freudian slip there. Um, so when you, yes, the, the short answer and the long answer is yes. Uh, if we're talking about NIL, there's some guys in this recruiting cycle that have been on campus a lot over the last year or two years. Uh that I think a lot of outlets have talked about coming to Georgia for a long time. I know uh, some of them were, some of them went so far as to tell Georgia's staff that they were coming to Georgia at one point in time, but they'll, they're ultimately not coming to Georgia or, you know, things are just kind of, uh, they just sort of cool off out of nowhere. And normally when that happens, what you're talking about is an NIL situation. Uh, Georgia is in a position where, they can very legitimately talk to players and say, if you come here, there may be someone out there that's willing to give you, you know, a bunch of money for the next four years. But if you come here, we'll develop you right. And you can, you can make money for the next decade, decade and a half in the NFL, and you can make a lot more of it. That being said, everyone has their own, life choices to make their own family situation. Uh, I'm never going to dog a kid for taking money, right? Like 
cash in while the opportunity is there. Life is short. Injuries happen. Uh, we often don't know the family situations for some of these guys. Um, you know, there may be siblings that need to be taken care of. Whatever it is, uh, it's their decision. It's their lives. It's their right to do whatever they want. But at the end of the day, uh, take a kid like Sadir Mitchell, right? Um, was trending to Georgia for a long time. Uh, everyone felt like he was coming. And all of a sudden, you know, kind of at the 11th hour, it's it's Texas, right? And uh, what I've been told is that there's, you know, there's been some, some NIL stuff that's happened there. I don't want to put out the misconception, though, that like Georgia's – Georgia has an NIL collective. Um, there is a massive difference between inducement for play and marketing opportunities, true name, image, and likeness. Um, I I can tell you that Georgia is not out there, you know, throwing big, crazy numbers around to kids, uh, basically saying, we'll give you this if you come here. Um I'm sure that NIL is part of their recruiting because it's got to be part of everybody's recruiting these days, but it's not a situation where UGA is, uh, you know, how should I put it? Like, it's not that they're not playing the NIL game, but they're not, you know, they're not, there's a clear difference between what Texas A&M is doing and what other schools are doing, or, you know, you're starting to see the schools this cycle who are doing something different than others. Um, and, you know, all of that will come out in the wash. But the reality is, like, go look at the pro day times for all of the guys that went to Texas A&M uh, or that were coming out of Texas A&M for the NFL draft last year. Like, they ran just kind of unbelievably bad um, – Bad times, right? Uh, like, I'm talking tight end Jalen Weidemeyer, who was a uh, projected first-round NFL draft pick in the preseason of last year. Go Google his name in mock draft. You will find him in first-round mock drafts. Um, that dude's all of a sudden running a 5.0940. Your running back is running a 4.840. Like, there's just – it wasn't good. And – they didn't have a very good NFL draft because of it. Meanwhile, Georgia, you got guys that were rotation players who are going out in the combine and they're, they're dropping four fours and they're, you know, testing out these crazy high athleticism scores and they're getting, you know, they're getting 15 guys drafted. So uh, there's going to be guys that take money and go to A&M and things don't work out and they transfer or, Things don't work out with their career, and, and they will become cautionary tales. So the market always corrects itself. Right now, the market is in a uh, it's in a spot where there's a new thing happening, and it's in flux. And we'll see where the actual like proper spot is. What's the proper amount for you know this Jalen Jaden Rashada kid, right? Um, I don't know what he got. I don't think he got nine and a half million dollars. His lawyer wants people to think he got that because it makes him look like he's damn good at his job, but it also makes him look like he's not protecting his client's interest, but longer conversation point being with Rashada, like he was at elite 11 this week and he didn't look good. 
how would you feel if you just dropped millions of dollars on a quarterback that doesn't look good at a quarterback camp with no rush? I'd be worried, wouldn't you? So we'll see. Um, I see Ben saying, I'm not talking about NIL. Yeah, I saw the video with the Texas A&M staffer pointing up in the stand saying, you know, these guys pay a lot of money. Uh, I haven't heard anything about what the outcome or ripple effect of that will be if anybody's going to get fired. But what I'll tell you is Jim Jimbo looks dumb um, going up there acting like Nick Saban making comments about NIL was the most egregious and dishonest thing ever. And, you know, jumping up there with like a persecution complex. And then all of a sudden there's always a smoking gun. Um, especially at a place like Texas A&M where this just happened overnight, where the switch just flipped and the faucet got turned on. There's plenty of schools in the SEC that have, you know, bagman ecosystems that have been going on for years and they hide their shit well, but like Texas A&M didn't try to hide it. They acted like they were trying to hide it, but if they were trying to hide it, we wouldn't all be talking about it. We wouldn't have all been talking about it on signing day last year and on early signing day last year and in October of last year. So long story short, Jimbo should have been smart enough to a never schedule that press conference, but B if he was going to go schedule a press conference and talk out, you know, be in his feelings about what Nick Saban said, he definitely shouldn't have uh, made any, you know, like, blanket statements about no laws or rules or anything like that being broken because there's always a smoking gun and it took what like six weeks for that smoking gun to come out great job um moving on uh one other thing on the commitment front i'm sorry on the recruiting front uh i did just since this does tie into sadir mitchell um it says, with Sadir Mitchell trending away, who do we target for his spot? So, uh, in this class, Jamal Jarrett has always been the, I think, the, the number one defensive tackle target. Um, would Mitchell have been a nice piece for Georgia? Yes. Like, he's a big body that I think would, would do well, especially when Georgia wants to run three-man fronts. He would be a great zero-technique nose tackle. Uh doesn't have the pass rush ability or the kind of high end athleticism of, uh, you know, a Jamal Jarrett or of what Georgia's had at the defensive tackle position in the last few years. But he could have been a great run stuffer in the SEC and a big body. And who knows what Scott Strickland would have developed him into over the course of his career. Maybe, you know, maybe he does develop those pass rush moves. But um, Jamal Jarrett is a guy who is 300 plus pounds and moves much, much quicker. Uh, I mean, his 100-meter and 200-meter times are are fast for anybody, and he's doing it at 300 pounds. Um, you know, what he does in terms of making plays outside of the tackle box, uh, in, in terms of shocking guards and centers and running outside of the box and, and tackling running backs on the perimeter or uh, what he can do in terms of jumping into gaps and, and disrupting the – the backfield or, you know, uh, quarterback, running back exchange, all of that stuff. Like he's different. Uh, he probably should be a, uh, a five-star 
and he probably will be a five-star. He's just a guy that's never camped very much. And the guys that go to camps are always going to get preferential uh, treatment normally, but he's a freak athlete. So Georgia's going to be fine. We expect him to, to sign with UGA. Uh, if you're a dog central subscriber, you've known that for a few weeks now, uh, you know, he's committing on July 19th, knock on wood for UGA uh, that there's not another NIL situation at the 13th hour kind of, kind of deal. But I, I think that he's going to be really impressive. Uh, the other name to keep an eye on a little bit different player, not a true uh, zero tech or three tech defensive tackle, but uh, Kelby Collins is a name that uh, it's been given to me here just in the last 24 hours. He's out of uh, Alabama, really impressive prospect. Um, I mean, he's, he's highly rated by the services. Uh, number six defensive lineman in the 24-7 sports composite, number 65 player in the country. But he's 6'5", 280. So he's got the length to be a pass rusher, but – like that's kind of the measurables of Trevon Walker, right? Like I think he would be kind of more of that like in Georgia's Georgia plays a mint front on defense a lot, which basically means they have a, a true kind of outside linebacker slash edge on one end, like a Nolan Smith or a Robert Beal. Then they have two defensive tackles squared up like a, a Jordan Davis and a Devontae Wyatt. And then they have, what they call a buck end. So Trevon Walker was that buck end where he played that four eye technique. So he's not outside of the tackle box trying to pass rush around the edge. He would do that on certain situational downs, but I see Collins as that type of player where he can play that four eye position and really be that guy that what you got to have in the SEC, like you got to be able to stop the run, right? And he, he would be that big body with the long arms that can get blockers off of them and, uh, and do that. And so kid out Alabama, um, George is obviously not the only program that wants him. Um, he did visit June 24th kind of, it's been a quieter recruitment. That's not a name that you've heard thrown around a lot, but, uh, I think he's a guy that UGA staff has evaluated and has, a very high opinion of, and uh, as opposed to taking um, maybe another edge prospect in this class, I think that you may see him end up in this. And then, you know, Georgia has Gabriel Harris in that edge class already. Uh, I think they, they really are hoping to, and, and maybe expecting to land uh, Samuel and Pimba and Quay Rousseau. So we'll see how it goes, but uh a little bit different strategy, I think, for Georgia on the defensive front. Instead of taking three true edge rushers, you're you're looking, or I'm sorry, taking four, maybe uh, you're you're or you know two true defensive tackles. You're looking at three edge guys, a true DT and Jarrett, and then that kind of hybrid buck end that has a big enough body to to get in and play defensive tackle in certain situations, can pass rush, but. Uh, is going to, you know, really, really be tough against the run. So something to watch there. Um, what else do we have here? Andy Adams asks, uh, could you touch 
upon how much of a downgrade Sears will be versus Luke as OL coach. So we talked about this a little bit on the last show. Um, I, when Cyril's was hired, the number that, you know, sets off the, the flashing alarm in my head a little bit was just the, the number of sacks allowed by Georgia or I'm sorry, by UNC uh, in his three year tenure there, particularly last year was a abject nightmare for North Carolina. I mean, I, they were a preseason top 10, top 12 program week one at Virginia tech. Sam Howell gets sacked like seven times and, and he's pressured all night. Howell was a really athletic quarterback. He ran for hundreds and hundreds, almost a thousand yards last year. Um, so a guy like that getting sacked seven times, I mean, he's just literally getting bared down upon on every single play. Uh, going back and looking at things a little bit, there's a couple things that I will say. Uh, one, that offensive line was really, really poor, like in terms of experience last year. Uh, it wasn't a well-recruited offensive line. There's just not that many schools that can recruit elite offensive linemen. Georgia just won a national title. Is is uh, is uh, Cyril's going to recruit on the level of Sam Pittman? No, but like almost nobody has ever recruited – offensive line position on the level of Sam Pittman during his time at Georgia in the history of college football. Like he was putting together just stupid, historically incredible classes. Um, I think that Cyril's will be a much better fit than Luke was with what Todd Mockin wants to do. I think philosophically those two guys agree on how an offensive line should function, how a run game should function. Um, I think they're going to sync up really well. Uh, Mockin likes to run more, uh, more mobile offensive linemen. He wants to see more, more pools, more power type schemes where you're pulling offensive linemen from one side of the formation and trying to create a numbers advantage in the box and spring a big run. Uh, Matt Luke's, Blocking scheme was much more zone blocking. Well, Luke, I'm sorry, not Matt Luke. Uh, Sam Pittman's blocking scheme with when he was with Cheney and Coley was much more zone blocking schemes, man blocking schemes where it was just everybody big and get them in front of you, and the running back just reads the line and, and picks a hole. Right? Um, I think. For as much talent as Georgia had on the offensive line, um, there were times where they underperformed in run blocking. Uh, last year, Georgia lost Tate Ratledge first series of the season. So I, I don't want to – I want to be fair to Matt Luke, but I also felt like it was very clear all season long. Josh and I talked about it week after week. You could look at it on film. You could look at uh, – what what holes on offense Georgia was averaging yards per carry on? You could look at everything, and you could tell that Georgia had a issue with guard play. Uh, and you know, there was times where Justin Schaefer struggled, but it was particularly Warren Erickson. I don't know if he was injured more than we knew last year or what, but there was just so much inconsistency in the center of that line. Um, Van Pran. First-year starter, redshirt freshman center, ended up being the most consistent of all those guys. But I just felt like 
Georgia had a problem all year. They, I'm not a, I'm not a football coach, but it's like if I can figure out you guys have a problem, then you guys can figure out you have a problem, right? And it felt like nothing was ever done to take care of that problem until second quarter of the national championship game when you're getting your ass whipped up front and Warren Erickson's getting pushed around and your quarterback's getting harassed and nobody has time and your run game's not working and everything's blowing up in your face and finally you do what you should have done two and a half, three months earlier and you make a switch at right guard. And that switch ended up being bringing in Jamari Sawyer and putting Broderick Jones at left tackle. But, like, go back to watch the uh, Tennessee game after Warren Erickson went out with the flu bug. Like, Truss had a couple, you know, a couple kind of, like, freshman mistakes or, you know, first-timer mistakes on the first couple series he was in the games where he just missed a call on a protection or, you know, something happened communication-wise. But, like, the second half of that game, he is mauling folks. And Georgia was opening up big holes at right guard. Uh, and really, what Sawyer came in at right guard, in the national championship game, Georgia dominated the line of scrimmage from that point on. Um, that James Cook run came off of right guard. You know, I mean, there was a lot. the The first series of the second half, Georgia was was doing good things on on the offensive line, and just for some reason went away from the run game when it was working well. But I say all that to say this: I I don't think that Matt Luke was as good as maybe everyone thinks that he was in hindsight when comparing the job that, that they should expect Cyril's to do. Go look at Matt Luke's recruiting for, for Georgia. And, you know, it wasn't bad by any means, but like, we're not talking about Georgia of the Mark Richt era. We're talking about modern UGA football, uh, like coming off of the recruiting run that Sam Pittman had just had. You should be, bringing in guys that, you know, don't maybe like fall under the umbrella of developmental prospects, at least not a class full of them. Um, so I, I think that would be my thing. Like he did what he needed to do. Matt Luke did what he needed to do to get Amarius Mims on campus, but he was also the reason why Marius Mims wanted to leave at point. So it's just, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Um, I do think Ernest Green is going to go down as one of the best inside O-linemen that Georgia, or, you know, he may end up playing tackle, but it's like that dude's going to be a stud. He has incredible hands. Um, but across the board, I think, you know, the if you look at the guys that, that Luke brought in, you know, he gets credit for Van Pran and, uh, and Mims and Broderick Jones and Tate Ratledge and a lot of those guys, but like a lot of those relationships were built by Sam Pittman and he took over kind of there at the end of that recruiting cycle. So time will tell. Um, but I, I think Stacy Searles, uh, the, the early returns are just that, the team likes them and things are going well. And I think, you know, Georgia, Georgia's uh, doing a, a decent job on the recruiting trail at offensive line uh, with some of the halls that like, just kind of the way things line up right now. Um, 
it's hard to stack really deep and good offensive line classes year after year because like every position now, these kids want to play. So um, we'll see. I, I think, though, that the product on the field and just mentally, I, I think we may see an improvement over what we saw uh, from Georgia's offensive line last year, particularly in the interior, just because there was so many downs where there was miscommunications. I mean, Georgia got dominated up front in the middle of the line by Missouri last year. Missouri was a bad football team, but they, you know, they pushed Georgia around at right guard and left guard and made things very hard. And, and, you know, that's Stetson Bennett had a big day statistically in that game because Georgia couldn't run the ball early in the, early in that game. And, and, really, you know, didn't run the ball well until the backups came in for, for both teams. So um, let's see if there's any other questions here. Uh, doesn't look like it at this time. Um, yeah, if you guys don't have anything else, I think we're going to wrap it up. We're right at an hour. Um one uh, thing I did want to share, uh, obviously, I'm going to plug dogcentral.com one more time. Please get over there and check it out. Uh, it's not just me. It's a bunch of really talented creators. Uh, Jason Brazell uh, is as plugged into UGA recruiting as anyone I've ever met or anyone that I know. Um, John Smith, uh, Josh Dog Stats, uh, the My Got a Podcast guys, Trey and Lamar from 100 Sanford. Um Dustin uh, with Field Street Forum. We've created a independent media collective and uh, we brought this team together very intentionally because our strengths and weaknesses uh, balance each other out really well. And so we're going to we're going to bring you guys a lot of broad based content on a lot of different things. But uh, yeah, this show, uh, when we change formats from dog sports to dog central, uh, the podcast feed for dog sports is basically gone away. We're, we're updating new and improved, nice and shiny. Um, and, uh, this show will go on the dog central podcast feed. It will be the first one. So, uh, I hope you guys will please like, and subscribe to that. And if you're here in the chat, hanging out, or you're watching live on YouTube and you haven't, you haven't subscribed, come on, what are you doing? subscribe we'll have fun we do this a lot um and uh yeah thank you guys for joining us looks like a good number of you watching this live especially for a friday before fourth of july so hope everyone has a good holiday weekend and drives safe and travels well i am graham coffee we'll see you guys soon uh you can find me on twitter at dog out west uh take care <laughs>